Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alvan. And I'm Stephen. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss who's in and who's out at number 10. And you ask us, why did Boris Johnson launch the Sue Gray inquiry in the first place? So we're recording after a weekend and the couple of days before that of drama in number 10. I think this is the first time I've spoken to you two. We did speak to Andrew Marr a bit about this on the previous episode about Manira Mirza and a number of other aides and the Prime Minister's principal private secretary, the top sort of civil servant in number 10, resigning. And over the weekend, there's been a few appointments to his team. Steve Barclay, who's the minister in charge of the cabinet office, is going to be his chief of staff. And Gitto Hari, mm. who was who was his chief of staff, I think, uh, during his first term as London mayor, is now going to be his director of communications. And we've already had a bit of an insight into the state that the prime minister is in through a rather strange interview that Gitto Hari's given, haven't we, Alba? I don't even know how to summarise it. It's just we're seeing lots of tweets from from this briefing where, you know, he bounced into the office. First of all, um, as he went into Downing Street, people asked him what what he would do first. And he held up this Tesco bag and said, I'm going to give everyone a healthy snack, which has, has charmed the nation, apparently. Or certainly it has charmed a lot of journalists from what you can see on Twitter. And then he said that he had a conversation with the prime minister who was in a buoyant mood and began singing Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. So we were despairing before this recording began that this kind of jovial tone has changed the tone of the coverage a little bit slightly. Like I suppose there is a question over whether people will be won over by it if they hear these kinds of briefings coming out of number 10. But certainly, I think after lots of very serious media coverage for a very long time, these jokes and things are putting the coverage on a bit of a different foot. And so already we do have a bit of a sense from Gutuhari that he's going to try to capture some of that like optimistic, eccentric, buoyant mood that we have historically associated with Boris Johnson, try to inject some of that back into the coverage, remind everyone why they love Boris Johnson, and that will be the, the big strategy for survival. What did you make of it, Stephen? I think the, the, the main reason why there is going to be a shift in how things are reported over the next couple of weeks is just the, unless the Conservative Party does get to 54, which, I mean, essentially right, the weird thing is there is no momentum behind anyone in Conservative politics at the moment. There is no serious momentum behind 
this government because it just has too many enemies and is kind of too too weak to make a serious decision about anything. As I suspect, we'll, we will once again be re-reminded of in April when, you know, the various issues around the energy price cap, this and you wrote a very good piece about why they have this strange approach to dealing with that, which is, of course, their aversion to using universal credit for, for anything if they can possibly avoid it. But all, all of those problems haven't gone away. But because none of those problems are new or interesting, I think there's going to be a real, there's a real market for the fun is back. And of course, the, the big difference, I, you know, I was talking to uh, someone about one of these jobs and whether or not one would, would take it in these circumstances. Started with the, because obviously one of the problems with source cultivation is you always want to laugh at people's jokes. And I did find it funny the, the first time someone said when I asked how much notice I have between sadly leaving the New Statesman and happily arriving at the FT, how much time I have off. But the first three times a Conservative MP said, oh, you could fit in being Downing Street Chief of Staff in that time mm-hmm. the way we were going. I laughed. <laughs> by, the, by the fourth time, just, yeah, no, this is, I accept this is still a good joke, but oh, I'm so tired of hearing it. But, <laughs> but one of these people said, the, the thing is, though, is right, is if slash when the Boris Johnson government comes to its, I think, inevitable end, no one is going to go, it's because Guto Hari was bad at his job. And Guto Hari beforehand was, you know, you know, it wasn't exactly like he's left a life of guaranteed fame and fortune to, to do this. So it will change some of the mood music, as, of course, will the fact that Steve Barclay, who I think is the more important appointment in lots and lots of different ways as chief of staff, because he's quite popular among conservative MPs. Most most importantly, he starts with a good bank of credibility among Brexiteers and indeed um yeah, you know, I want to say the right, but I think in some ways it's more accuracy. The economically dry, so I yeah, you know, like people who feel in this government has has abandoned too many conservative orthodoxies. And all of this stuff helps the mood music, but it doesn't change the fundamental issue, which is do the role of chief of staff while being mm. an MP, while overseeing the I think desirable in other ways, but we don't while overseeing the kind of merger of the cabinet office into a new office of the Prime Minister. Which means that the sort of chaos, disorganization, lack of proper plan, yeah, all of the sort of underlying issues which have basically been a problem with the Johnson uh, Downing Street machine since December 2019, none of those things are going to go away. And so in some ways, it's a bit like this government's like a ship which has hit one iceberg. It's taking on water very slowly. A bunch of people have started going, oh, we haven't sunk yet. And it's like, yeah, but not only are you still taking on water, lads, there is more iceberg than water at this point, you know, just looking ahead at the next six months. So, yeah, I think it changes the mood music, but it doesn't change the problem. And the problem is yeah. pretty severe. Yeah. And I suppose looking back, it's interesting to think about when Theresa May was in trouble after the poor showing in the 2017 general election. And there was a sort of change of the guards in terms of her staff. Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill were out. And then she sort of did the opposite thing to what Boris Johnson is doing with her chief of staff and appointed Gavin Barwell, who had been an MP and had lost his seat. And he's actually tweeted, it won't be easy to combine being chief of staff with a minister and an MP. But it didn't ultimately make a difference to the sort of doomed calculation, did it, in terms of her fate, which was there wasn't enough support for the Brexit deal that she was putting together and ultimately it led to her demise. And we have a similar situation with Boris Johnson. It's not a great policy divide that's dividing Tory MPs. It's his character that's dividing Tory MPs. And that 
also is not going to change. Not because of parliamentary arithmetic, but because of the fact that his personality is not not going to change, regardless of the people who are around him. And as you said, Gitto is already he's already sort of perpetuating um, the thing about Boris Johnson that most people know about his character that he is this clownish figure. I think one of his one of um, Gitto Hari's quotes has been, "Oh, he's not a complete clown," which sort of embeds in people's <laughs> minds perhaps what they first loved about Boris Johnson. So it, it shows that they're not actually trying to change that the sort of public perception of the prime minister and like you say they're trying to refocus the public's attention on the fact that he's this different kind of politician perhaps a sort of fun figure but i think that's very jarring in, in terms of the the anger that we know is still out there over over what he's done see i think that it, i think that there is a little bit of a battle over how boris johnson is seen i think that's always been the difficulty that since well before he was foreign secretary I don't know if people remember that brilliant interview that Eddie Mayer did when he was standing in for Andrew Marr one week on that Sunday politics programme. And it was really one of the first times that Eddie Mayer took the approach of not framing Boris Johnson as a sort of unserious clown, but as a kind of dangerous figure. Mm-hmm. And obviously the like being unserious can overlap with being dangerous as a politician, but I think that the, the two are separate in people's minds. And so without commenting on, on which is actually the case, I think that mm. maybe Conservative MPs are happy enough to have a jovial, slightly lighthearted leader, if that makes people feel good and wins them votes. But they're much less comfortable with chilling moments like perpetuating a completely false smear about Keir Starmer with the, Jim, the Jimmy Savile case. And so maybe bringing it back onto a footing where he is a bit more jovial, you know, is maybe that is a good strategy. But but it is just maybe if we go back to those resignations, because the three of us haven't talked about them together. And, and Stephen, you wrote a, a very good piece about the significance of Manira Moses resignation, which is just so striking that even though that was a few days ago, we probably should go back to it. I mean, I think this is the thing is I think in some ways, right, it's a classic example of the news agenda marches on but the facts don't march on with the kind, yeah, old facts don't cease to be facts. And I think a lot of the time sort of political analysis forgets that just because a fact is old and therefore boring to us doesn't mean it's not germane. It is hugely important that his his actual closest aid, despite what some people were writing up when they were trying to um, curry favour with Dominic Cummings back in the day, his actual closest aid, someone who's you know cited and admired you know repeatedly at one of the number of quotes, including a wonderfully colourful quote from Politico's and Room 12 and Emilia Castillo, where he said, yeah, this will be like, you know, how Mary felt watching Jesus on the cross. But various quotes to that extent, basically saying, look, this is one of the few people who actually likes him, who he actually likes going, do you know what, I'm out of here. And it's very mm-hmm. tempting people go oh, to be knowing and go, oh, she does. She didn't really quit over the Savile thing. It's actually because it's just like, well, one, you have no idea if that's true, but also like, it doesn't really matter if her expressed reasons for quitting are true or not. His closest aide, and I think the most irreplaceable of his aides, has quit. That is a far bigger deal than can you have this like government held together with wire and sellotape going, oh, it's fine, I'll just bring in a popular MP to triple job as my chief of staff and it won't matter than yeah this yeah this kind of then yeah then the government is keeling over and falling about and i just think whether it's next week next month right then this is just the kind of weird bit in the life of a a dying premiership you know a bit like with theresa may after the scribbles when suddenly people started going 
Maybe things are fine. She's pulled off a reshuffle. <laughs> Maybe this government isn't a zombie. And then the second they got to the Brexit votes, which kind of forced them, yeah, that forced them out of their sort of liminal state of being a sort of viable government as long as they didn't try to govern, then, yeah, immediately turned out they weren't fine. And I think this is the thing, isn't it? Like, Manira's exit is, is just the biggest and most obvious sign that this is a government that is not fine, has lost key personnel. And I think people, yes, he's been around for a long time, but actually you're, one's ratings don't ever rebound, really. Like, you know, the, unless you have an economic boom, a, a successful small war, yeah, and now it's possible, of course, then there'll be an economic boom and a successful small war, but I wouldn't <laughs> bet very highly on either of those if I were in Downing Street. And yeah, so it's, I guess my short thing on Manira Merza leaving is it's bad. She absolutely gifted us with one of the best breakup lines, if you ever need one, of um, I, it is not too late for you, but I'm sorry to say it is too late for me, which I think will go down as one of the great historic lines in a resignation letter. I, I wonder how, maybe she just resigned so she could use the line. I um, just think it's great. <laughs> I don't really think that. But also, I suppose that's far and away the most significant one. But there were some other resignations or departures, which are sort of a little bit less significant, but still probably it's worth like running through them briefly. Martin Reynolds, the author of that fateful email inviting staff in number 10 to a bring your own booze event in the garden of number 10 he has left an advisor working under Manira Mirza also quit and then Dan Rosenfield who was Boris Johnson's chief of staff before Steve Barkley was brought in to replace him so I'm very sad about the departure of Dan Rosenfield just on a sort of personal level because I did a profile of him just a short one for the new statesman when he was brought in to effectively replace Dominic Cummings, even though Dominic Cummings was never actually chief of staff. And I spoke to lots of people. He, he worked in the Treasury for a long time as principal private secretary to Gordon Brown and George Osborne. So lots of quite senior politicians or former formerly senior politicians know him and have quite a high opinion of him and he was framed as the anti-Cummings like someone who was very establishment has worked in senior positions in the treasury has a good understanding of the British intelligence services who is across all of the detail of these things and then he has just been completely underwhelming since he came into number 10. It, it really was suggested to me before he was brought in that he'd be just some sort of brilliantly efficient James Bond character who could whip the Downing Street operation into shape and impose order a bit like Dominic Cummings. And he just like totally failed to do that. I think that he wasn't popular anyway, but that's just another, uh, just another example of how actually I think despite the way things have recently gone downhill... There has, we've been talking for ages about the sort of the lack of grip in number 10 and the lacuna left by Dominic Cummings that Boris Johnson essentially doesn't really know what he wants and needs people around him to enforce a direction. And Dominic, I suppose that the problem was that Dominic Cummings knew what direction he wanted to impose, even if it sometimes clashed with Boris Johnson. But since he left, Dan Rosenfield hasn't had direction that he wanted to impose and if there's no will of the prime minister there to impose then then you just end up being directionless and that's aside from the sort of the the obvious cultural issues at number 10 so yeah so he's gone there there were a few other departures 
And then, as we were saying, Steve Barkley and Guto Harry brought in. But there's also Andrew Griffiths, who until recently was Boris Johnson's PPS. So the sort of the MP who's the go-between between the Prime Minister and the back benches. And he's been promoted to Director of Policy, which is also quite interesting. People have been quite amused already by his sort of corporate speak. So he was only elected in 2019 and he lent, he has a townhouse in Westminster, which he lent to Boris Johnson for campaigning purposes. Before he was elected, he was very senior at Sky and is well known in the business community. He's been very loyal to Boris Johnson in the past few weeks as his PPS and then has been rewarded with his new director of policy role. But I think Tory MPs have not been massively impressed. I think he's still a well-liked and popular figure, but he his messages to colleagues about his promotion have been seen as a bit saccharine. And he's also written a piece for Conservative Home this morning about what his priorities will be as the Prime Minister's new director of policy. And again, it's very corporate speak. These are just, I suppose, like all the little changes behind the scenes that, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if, if, if any Conservative MPs are going to be persuaded by the promotion of someone like Andrew Griffith or Steve Barkley, like loyal and well-liked people. But if, as you say, Stephen, the ship is already sinking, then it really, it literally is just like reshuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, and you mentioned that Munira Mirza sort of resignation letter and that line, that breakup line that was really punchy. And I think in that letter, you really do get to the sort of heart of the problem for all of these people who are going in to try and help Boris Johnson survive, which is that he won't change despite the advice that he's given. So I think one of her contentions in her letter was that she wanted him to apologise for the smear against Keir Starmer in terms of the sort of Jim Savile conspiracy theory and he sort of was yeah he stopped short at apologizing when he gave an interview about it and and that is what she claims pushed her over the edge and so I think that's just a sign isn't it he is notoriously a man who doesn't like to apologize and although he's had to apologize a few times recently it's always been caveated and there's always been people within the party saying it didn't seem um, sincere. And so he has a, that problem with contrition and also following advice. So I think that is the heart of the problem, really, for this new Downing Street operation. How will you get a man who won't change to change? And obviously, one of the answers is what we've just been discussing earlier in the podcast, which is you pivot towards the uh, public persona that you know is popular with people. Stephen says you can't get back from these bad ratings that he's had. People will say often when they talk about Boris Johnson, who have been involved in British politics for a long time, that if anyone can bounce back, he can. So I suppose that's the calculation being made at the moment. I think I lean more towards Stephen's perspective, which is that it's too late for him now and that his reputation is leading into the reputation of the party as a whole. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, 
his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And today is a question from David, who asks, why did Johnson commission the Grey investigation, given how damaging it turned out to be, and given what he knew about the parties and that she would likely turn information over to the police? Is it that he's just only interested in his short-term survival? So, yeah, why do you think that he decided to to hand this stuff over to a cabinet office inquiry? So I think there are two, this is a really great question. I think there are two things at work here, right? The first is we shouldn't forget that like Sue Gray doing it was not plan A. Plan A was Simon Case doing it. And presumably given that he had been at some parties that was fairly or unfairly an assumption, yeah, an assumption that they could just like, then it would just be like blah blah issues of culture. Also, he doesn't think he has done anything wrong. That is one of the reasons why the all of the public appearances of it, you know, even the ones which have started well, like there's been a secondary explosion because mm-hmm. they all have the kind of like, you know, I'm sorry if two minutes later, actually you should be sorry for bothering me kind of vibe. But also, and this again happens with political parties, kind of speaks to what we're talking about in part one, which is that like political parties, I think, have a real tendency to start convincing themselves and their own internal issues are of huge import to the public, right? Then broadly, the Conservative Party as a whole had convinced itself that, like, this is a problem largely within their own walls. And then if, if, like, Downing Street listens to MPs a bit more and the Cabinet is more involved. But actually, look, an underlying problem, that the Prime Minister's job approval has fallen. Belief in the government's handling of a whole swathe of issues has fallen. And then the least important indicator of those, I think, at this point in Parliament's voting intention, but for people who care about that sort of thing, there is clearly a hardening of some people who were saying don't know are now actively saying they vote for Labour or the Lib Dems or, or, or the Greens or, or whatever. And I think it, it just basically all comes down to the kind of, yeah, so it, it is exactly this kind of combination of not thinking he'd done anything wrong and going, OK, how are we going to survive week to week? And that's always the problem. Once a government or indeed an opposition leader gets into a position where they're just going, how do we survive week to week? Most of the time, the way they survive week to week is by taking the political equivalent of a second payday loan out. And of course, you you cannot get out of trouble that way. You can only make your problem worse. Yeah, I also think it, it's just one of those things, isn't it? If you're a politician under attack from all sides and these stories keep on coming out, the easiest thing is for you and your ministers to launch an inquiry or to, or to appoint someone to, to investigate so that then next time you're doing the media rounds, you can say, well, you know, I don't want to presuppose the findings of this inquiry. 
they're looking into it all, which is always the frustration for people who <laughs> interview politicians about things like this, because once they've got someone looking into it, it's then an excuse for them to to basically say that they don't have to answer questions about it. And you could see you could see a bit of that happening, particularly with the Met police uh, investigation, where it, it just gave ministers a dodge around questions about it. But I don't think that really worked because it just meant that they were asked over and over again the same questions and couldn't give adequate answers. But I, I always have a suspicion that whenever something's handed over to an inquiry, it's um, it's partly, because for, for sh- like, like our questioner has suggested, it's partly for sort of short-term survival so that you don't have to be accountable in the short term. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.